This morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 23. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, Nina, that's one of my favorite scriptures, and I don't know if I've ever heard it read so well. Thank you. That was great. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. My name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here at Pine Lake Covenant Church, and uh, normally I'm behind my guitar doing music and getting to lead in worship. Uh, but every now and then I get to come out from behind that thing and uh, share the word with you. And so um, I get that privilege this morning. And we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. We're gonna really kind of uh, take a big nodes dive right into this psalm, this very iconic passage of scripture. Uh, but before we go into it, I want to talk about name tags for a second. Okay. Uh, so how many of you watched the show Fixer Upper? Yeah, okay, I love that show. It's one of my most favorite shows. And um, last week was kind of like, uh, like, 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 a, like a very bad episode of Fixer Upper. And you never have a bad episode of Fixer Upper, right? And this is what I mean by that. Uh, to make this a reality, I had to do so much work. Oh, you have no idea what went into this. And it was kind of like preparing a home, right? I'm like getting things ready and like all this stuff. And then um, last week, we kind of revealed it. And the reaction was not quite what I expected it was going to be. Um, some people uh, were like, oh, cool. Um, some people were like, yay. And then other people were like, no, no, I do not like what you did to my house. What is this? Um, so I just want to talk about it for um, a second. The first thing I want to say is I'm sorry. Okay, I apologize. Because um, we didn't communicate. I didn't communicate very much about this and why we were doing it. We talked with the greeters and the ushers about it, the welcoming team. Uh, it was spoken about at a prayer gathering that was on a Sunday night. Maybe, maybe like 40 to 50 people. But we never talked about it here. We never talked about why we're doing this and why this is important. Um, and I get it. For some people, it's a, it's a very, very big change. And change is scary. Um, for some people, it's, it's difficult to, to just have it on. I absolutely get that. And so... I just want to say, apologize that we didn't communicate about it in detail, and I want to share a bit about, about why we're doing it. Um, I was in Boston for 10 years, and for eight of those years, I was a part of uh, Church Network, um, and they're in our denomination. And when I was there, it was one church of maybe around 300 people. And by the time I left, it's now at about seven churches. And they do some things very, very well. Um, Boston is a very transient, disconnected area to live. People don't talk to each other because uh, every six months to two years, people are moving away. And we had to figure out a way. How can we make it easy for new people to come in? Because they come in so often. Right? How can we make it easy for people to, to not feel the pressure of having to memorize every single name? And so this was inspired by them and what they do. Um, and the heart behind it is simple, right? We want to be a church, a place where um, people belong. I'm convinced more than ever that what people want more than anything is a place of belonging, a sense of belonging. Uh, it's kind of like the show Cheers, which actually was uh, inspired by a pub in Boston. Um, 
but you know, the place where everyone knows your name. Um, I love that show. And so um, we're going to try this, okay? Now, I know some of you said newcomers get stickers. Yes, I know. Um, if they want to have a printed name tag, if you're a visitor and you want to have a printed name tag, all you have to do is write your name on one of the clipboards in the back, and by the next time you arrive, it'll be ready for you. Um, we want to give people an opportunity to opt in, and we want to be able to know that they're new and, uh, and welcome them. I will say this. If wearing this is difficult for you, so meaning if you have like social anxiety, right, or if it's just really, really hard, and you're just not in a space where you want to connect with people, or you're a major, major introvert, or whatever that may be, you don't have to wear this, all right? We're not a dictatorship, all right? God called us to freedom. Galatians tells us that, all right? This is, this is just a way that we're trying to connect with each other. Um, if you don't like this and you want to wear a sticker tag, you can wear a sticker tag, all right? Um, by all means, you, have to do, uh, you don't have to follow um, this exact protocol. The last thing I'll say about it is that if this doesn't work, all right, we'll, we'll stop, we just won't do it. Um, we're going to try for a little bit for a season to see if uh, it can help us to get to know each other better and to connect with each other. But if it doesn't work, then we'll explore another way um, of how we can be community together. Um, I hope, I don't know what you pray for when you think about our church, but I pray, I pray that new people will show up every week. People who don't know Jesus, people who don't know this church will show up through our doors. And it's intimidating when you walk into a space of 100 people and you don't know anybody. It's intimidating when you meet someone, maybe five people in like a greeting time, and after service they're talking to you again and you can't remember if their name was Bill or Bob. (laughs) And it's like, well, is that a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. We all experience it. I experience it. Five months ago when I came, like, I I tell everyone I'm JD, right? But there are moments where people come to me, hey, JD, and I'm like, Lord, inspire my memory (laughs) in this moment. And I just kind of, oh, yeah, good, good, good. You know, this makes it easy. And that's all it is. Okay. So is everyone, all right, let's take a deep breath in. Deep breath out. Okay. We are good. All right, let's jump into this psalm. One of the things that's interesting about scripture is that when I'm reading through the Old Testament or even through the New Testament, a lot of times it's hard for me to connect with people. Right? These are people who walked with God, who heard God, who had this relationship with God. And sometimes I think of them um, painted in some saintly way, right? that they were perfect people. What, what, what do they know about my real struggles? This psalm, Psalm 23, was written by a man named David. He was a, one of the greatest kings of Israel. He is heralded as uh, one of the greatest leaders of his time in Israel's history. I mean, he was just an incredible person, right? And he penned these words. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful um, testimony of, of just his relationship with God. And it's lovely. We all know it. Many of us memorize it, right? We get stickers for doing that in Sunday school when Sunday school existed, that kind of a thing. We get that. And so the question is, what does David know about anxiety? Or how does Psalm 23 speak to us? And the answer is, is that, first and foremost, David lived a very anxious life. A really anxious life. Okay? I'm going to give you a very, very fast synopsis of his life. Okay? He was a teenager who was forgotten by his family. The youngest of eight. Right? In an awkward encounter, this prophet comes and decides to choose him to be king over a country. When he's just a kid. And then he's um, visiting his brothers one day during a, a war on the front lines, and everyone is scared of this giant. And David all of a sudden says, I'm going to go fight him. Right? So he goes and fights this giant, and he's like, oh, the giant's no big deal because you know, I've killed bears and wolves, and I know how to defend them, so it's whatever. And then eventually he ends up working for Saul. 
Saul's like, I need you to come and play music for me because I get attacked by spiritual forces and I need that. And then after some time passes, Saul decides he wants to kill David. So he tries to kill him and David's now on the run. And he's like running all over the place, hiding in caves, doing all this stuff. Saul is like killing him, but he won't kill him. And then he finally becomes king and he's like a good king for a while. But then there's a period of time where um, he kind of gets comfortable the scriptures tell us that, that in the season when kings should be off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. And on one day, he was looking, and he saw a woman bathing. Okay, we're going to, this the PG version, we're going to tread those lines, because it's in the Bible. He sees Bathsheba bathing. She's lovely, out in the sunlight, naked. And he goes, I'm the king, I must have her. And so he takes her. They sleep together. They have this whole thing. And then he creates this conspiracy to kill her husband, who's a part of his army fighting on the front lines. And then eventually the husband dies and gets killed, and there's this conspiracy, and then David gets confronted. And then Bathsheba gets pregnant from that encounter, and the child is born, but the child dies. And so he stays in the temple for three to four days. He doesn't eat. You know, and then they have another child, and then David, as he continues in his reign, he has a few more wives and a few more kids, and then his, his kids, I mean, if you think his life is hard enough to get there, his kids are, man, it's a mess. One, one, one of his sons falls in love with his half-sister and decides that uh, I must have her for myself. And so, you know, he forces himself onto her, right? Crazy. Uh, and then she's like wrecked from that experience and and then her brother decides to kill that guy so he kills that guy and then he decides to go and run away and he runs away but then he decides to come back his name is Absalom and he says you know what I can't believe my father wasn't there for my sister and me I'm going to kill him so David leaves again running for his life because his son is coming after her to kill him Eventually, Absalom dies. David comes back. He mourns. And then near the end of David's life, right, he's like, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something for God. So he says, I want to build a temple. I live in a palace, but God lives in a tent. I want to build a house for God. And so he goes to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, this is in your heart. It seems like you want it. God is with you. And that night, God comes to Nathan and says, actually, David is a man of war. His hands have shed blood. I want his son Solomon to build it. So David spends the rest of his days preparing something for his son to do, something that he never gets to do. This man writes these words. It's crazy, right? How do you live a life that's filled with such anxiety, have a relationship with God that pens these words, and then, here's the wild part, God says that David is a man after my own heart. It's almost like if he were alive, right, and there'd be probably like a reality TV show. David and his family, right? Before the Kardashians, there was David. (laughs) Keeping up the royals. I don't know what it would be called. That's where the context is for these words. Now, we're going to jump right in. David says this phrase right in the beginning, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. What does that mean? I lack nothing means, look, I'm good. I have everything I need, and all the wants I have are properly managed. How can you say that? Right? How can he say that I have everything I need and even though I want things, I, I don't necessarily need to have them. I can, I can trust, I can trust. He can say that because of the phrase before, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. David's view of God is a radical one. Our view of God, whatever view you have of God, is probably the most important thought you're going to have in your life. 
life. It's going to change the way you live your life, the way you love people, the way you love yourself, the way you care for yourself, the way you don't care for yourself or don't do those things. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, okay? The use of the word my denotes intimacy. I'm married to a wonderful woman. Her name is Sarah. I don't say she is a wife or she is the wife. Sometimes I say the wifey. A little different, right? But I say she is my Sarah. Or even more intimate, she is my Shella Blanky. Or she is Sarah, my love. The word my denotes intimacy. David views God. He says, you are my shepherd. We all know what a shepherd is and what a shepherd does. Cares and leads and tends and walks with. But the word my is the thing. He's not a shepherd. God is not a shepherd. He's not the shepherd. He is my shepherd. And we have to realize, this, the Christian faith, if you're new to Christianity or if you've been in it for a long time, it is not about being connected to a God who is behind a moral system. It's not about being connected to a God who is distant and far and is to be revered. It is radically intimate and personal. He is my God. He is my shepherd. And so David, because he sees God this way, he can say, I lack nothing. I have everything I need and the wants that I have I can manage. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Black Friday deals went active this morning. I know because I've been paying attention. Right? And I've been asking this question like, oh, the 4K TVs, man, they are really on sale right now because there's like QLED TVs and OLED TVs so the LED TVs are like way cheaper. It's like, oh my goodness, like do I need a TV? No, the one I have is operational but it's like five years old and that technology is like dog gear so it's really 30 years old. <laughs> but I want a TV, I want a TV and I had a two-hour conversation with my wife about this, okay? She doesn't care. You want a TV, get a TV. She's like, but honey, is it long enough? I bring out the tape measure. (laughs) What's the optimal distance if you're sitting at this angle? What would it be like if I said, I lack nothing? I'm not driven by this need. I have to have this to survive. Or I want this, but I lack nothing. Because the Lord is my shepherd. It's a place of peace. It's a place of assurance. And so David lives with this reality, this picture of God that says that he is someone who knows him, cares for him, loves him, takes care of him, leads him. And the shepherd, as we see in this psalm, leads David and leads us to three places. Leads us to a place of rest, a place of challenge, and a place of promise. So the first place is a place of rest. David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my souls. You know, one of our greatest sources of anxiety is our ungodly, hurried, restless pace of life. And I don't know about you, but I see it everywhere. I see it on the plateau, everywhere. I see it in my life, everywhere. Right? We do way too much. And it's funny because being busy is kind of like a badge of honor. All right? I don't know if you've ever heard this conversation, but I hear it all the time. Hey, how's it going? How's your week? Oh, it was good, but busy, you know, busy. Oh, yeah, that's cool, yeah. Oh, yeah, how's your, oh, my week was busy, like really busy. You know, like I had that stuff and, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then I had to do the thing with the kids and it was busier than busy, right? And we try to out-busy each other. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But by the end, the person's like, oh, I don't have time to talk right now. Shoot me an email, I'll see you later. He's gone. There was a lack of presence. There's a lack of um, slowing down. Everything is fast, 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 fast. And the world seems to get faster. 
People work not 40 hours a week, but 50, 60, or 70 hours a week. And then they're traveling. And then they're bombarded by emails, which create mental fatigue. And don't really solve things. Everyone just keeps seeing each other. It goes back and forth. And then there's death by meetings. We meet and you don't really do work in meetings. You leave the meeting being like, we have to do more work. And I think we met to talk about the work that we haven't done yet. So it just doesn't stop. Stay-at-home moms are busy. Right? Sarah, my wife? Oh, thank God I'm not a woman. I couldn't live that life. She's amazing. I have no idea how much damage she has to keep up with our little daughter who's you know, now trying to, she's crawling everywhere. She's trying to stand, stand and walk. Stay at home. Dad's busy. Right? People who work, retired people are busy. I was talking to a couple of people who were retired and they were like, you know, it's funny. I thought that life was going to slow down, but now I have time to do the stuff I want and I'm doing everything. <laughs> I'm busy. And here's what's interesting. When we live this pace of life, our souls get weary. Our souls get worn out. It takes a beating. And here's the reason why. We are mental, physical, emotional, spiritual beings. And when one part is affected, you can't disassociate or disconnect it with the other part. So sometimes when you're physically tired, right, When you come to God, when you're physically tired and you try to pray and you try to read the word, you don't don't fall into a deep silence. You fall into a deep sleep (laughs) because you're tired. Your spirit, the, the flesh is weak. The spirit might be willing, right? But they're connected, see? And so what we find is that our shepherd... David says that he leads us to these calm waters, these green pastures, and he restores my soul. God wants to restore your soul. He wants to give you a life of wholeness and peace. And it doesn't come from this ridiculous pace of life. Now, the question is, well, why do we push ourselves so hard? Right? Well, simple. Our culture tells us, you are what you produce. You bring value because of what you do. Whether it's for your job or your family or for your community, the more you do, the more present you are, the more value you bring to me, I value you. Is work bad? No, of course not. It's interesting. If you look in Genesis, right, Genesis chapter 2, um, you find that, that God had created the world and that the plants were being watered by this kind of supernatural irrigation system, sprinkler system. It says that waters were coming from the earth and watering the plants and going down, but it had not yet rained. God didn't send rain because there was no one to work the ground. God needed a gardener, so he creates Adam. Adam was created to work. It was part of his divine mandate from God. And this is why in Genesis 3, right, when sin comes into the world, work is cursed. And, and God says, okay, now you're going to work, and you're going to have to work really, 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 really hard. You're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to be difficult, and it's not going to be fruitful and easy, but it's going to be really, 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 really challenging. Right? And as civilizations have developed, right, that pace of work and the hardness of getting any fruit and making a living and meeting the everyday needs and all of that, and then the culture that says you're important because you do so much, pushes us to this place where we say, yes, I have to do to have value. Now, here's what's funny. Here's another picture in scripture. Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years. For 30 of those years, he was just a normal person. You know, Jesus, the Kairos kid, Jesus, the middle schooler, the high schooler, right? Fighting with his parents, all this kind of thing, right? For 30 years, Jesus did nothing except he was apprenticing in a shop, blue-collar carpenter life. That's, he was just a human being. He didn't do a single miracle. He ministered for three years and then, you know, died, resurrected, went to heaven, that whole thing. 
But for 30 years, he did nothing. The beginning of Jesus' ministry was his baptism. And when he goes into the waters of baptism, he comes out of the waters, and what does the Father say to him? You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, God the Father was pleased in Jesus simply because of who he was and not anything he did. What if, instead of believing the narrative that, that we are what we do, we said, actually, we are what, what we are. That, that it's not in the doing, but it's in the being. See, God brings us to a place of rest because he says, look, in my kingdom, in this life, I love you because you're my son. I love you because you're my daughter, because you're my child. You don't have to do a single thing. I'll do it all for you. Now, that doesn't mean you have to live your life. It doesn't mean that there's an ownership, right? There's a partnership. There's a divine dance in terms of the everyday. But the essence of grace itself is that it's undeserved and unmerited. And what that simply means is that God says, I love you and you bring value to me simply because of who you are and not anything you do. And so our father, the shepherd, he leads us to places of rest because God knows how tired we actually are. The second thing that we find in this psalm is that the shepherd leads to a place of challenge. David writes these words, He guides me along right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, if you read carefully, there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction that happens. Right? You hear these words, you lead me in right paths for your namesake. And then he says, even if you lead me to the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. Now the darkest valley is biblical language, it's poetic language. Uh, other translations have it as um, the shadow of death. Right? The valley of the shadow of death. Right? Um, death's door. It's like this valley that's like incredibly dark. Now, valleys um, are symbolic of hardships, periods of hardship, moments of difficulty. So if God leads me in right paths, why am I in a valley? It's a question. Why is all this stuff happening to me when God is supposedly leading me? And the question that we ask ourselves when we're in our valleys is, where is God in the middle of all of it? Now, valleys happen to us for several different reasons. Sometimes it's a result of sin. We live in a broken world. I get that. Things are all broken, all messed up, and the, the injustice that happens, that could be a valley for us. We, we, we get into valleys and places of hardship because of the effects of um, sin that other people do to us. Right? This, this stuff that's going on with Me Too right, in Hollywood, and now it's in the U.S. world of gymnastics, and the violence that we see and all of that. It's unbelievable that people can be that way. Sometimes it's the effects of our own sin and our own consequences. But sometimes valleys happen because of spiritual reasons. There are forces of evil that are working against you, me, right? That are warring against the kingdom of God. And then, on the other side, sometimes God leads you to the valley. He has a purpose for you there. And then sometimes you experience a spiritual change in a season, just like the world around us has seasons, our spiritual lives have seasons. You have moments of summer that are awesome. You have, then you have fall where like the worship songs and the way you read the Bible just kind of starts dwindling and then you're like spiritually dead. <laughs> you're like, winter, this is winter. I don't feel God at all. And then out of nowhere comes spring, right? And so we experience valleys for a lot of different reasons. And I've been through my own share of valleys. 
unexplained things that have happened, natural disasters, things, my own mistakes, hurts from church communities and earthly fathers, fortunes of evil, spiritual seasons, all of that stuff, okay? Now, here's the thing. We experience valleys and we ask the question, where is God and why is this happening? Some people will say, that is not the Christian life. They will say the Christian life and the life in the kingdom is that you're promised health, wealth, and prosperity, right? That if you claim all those things, that you're going to be not subject to those things over there. That when God brings you into new life, it's grace and hope and all things wonderful. That's not the promise that you see in Bible. It's not the promise that you see God giving his people. The promise that God gives us is not that hardship and suffering would be absent from our lives. The promise he gives us is that he would never be absent from us. The promise is presence. David says, right, that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. I can't tell you how many times there have been in my life where I've thought, God isn't with me in this. No way. He's not here. He doesn't care. He's distant. I don't even feel him. Right? My picture of God is not a shepherd who cares and who's close, but he's someone who's far away. This pain I'm feeling, right? this loss that my friend is experiencing, this horrible thing that I hear about on the news or in the world around me. The picture that David has of God is a God who is with him in the valley. It's not so much that God leads us to those places of rest, but it's really that he leads us through the places of challenges. There are moments where things are peaceful and wonderful, but there are moments where life just goes wrong, the world goes wrong, unexplained things happen, disease, loss, accidents, so many things. And our God is not a God who's far away. Our God is not a God who's distant, but he is a God who is there with us in the midst of that. Now it's like, well, how is that possible, J.D.? How can this divine God understand? It's because Jesus became human. Can you imagine Jesus... As a kid, what was he like? Was he like a bratty kid? Was he a good kid? <laughs> you know? I mean, he was the... Did he have, like, magical powers that he used? You know, like Harry Potter or something? Sorry. That... Yeah, okay, you get, you get it. <laughs> Jesus as a teenager. He went through puberty. Can you imagine that? Did he have really bad, like, body odor? You know? Did he struggle with his identity as he was changing? We know he argued with his parents, Right? They're like in the, he's like hanging out in the temple talking to the priests, schooling them on theology. And for three days, his parents don't realize where he is. Okay? They're traveling in a caravan and they don't realize it. Three days. Who's, whose fault is that? Is that Jesus' fault or parents' fault? That is the parents' fault. <laughs> but the parents come and they're like, Jesus, where were you? And he's like, I'm just doing my business, talking to my father. <sighs> they're like, come on. He's like, with you? I don't know. Can you imagine Jesus as a teenager? What about as he grew up into older ages, right? The 15, 16, 17, 20. As he's apprenticing in his shop, blue-collar worker, carpentry, serving people. He must have had friends, maybe who bullied him because his dad wasn't wealthy. Maybe he had um, people who thought he was a bad person because can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Maybe, maybe he struggled with those things. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, says that he sympathizes with us. We have a high priest who went through this life, this human life, for 30 years. And that's why he can say, I'm with you. 
I'm with you in the hoping. I'm with you in the hurting. I'm with you in the crying. I'm with you in the longing. I'm with you in the waiting. You can make it through the valley because I'm with you. You don't have to fear anything. This whole fearing thing is so interesting because the next line that we see, right, is uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, Whenever I read this, I get such a funny image inside. I love mixed martial arts. I grew up doing martial arts my whole life. Um, I was bullied, and so my mom was like, let's teach you how to fight. And it worked. It worked great. Um, And so it's interesting. Uh, There's a lot of big fights in the mixed martial art world, but but I want you to imagine, right, that we're there, and we're in the octagon, and we're, like, going to watch these two people fight, and they're, like, getting warmed up, you know, they're trying to psych each other out, and they're like, yeah, and they're, like, screaming and, like, getting all hyped, and they're ready to fight. But imagine if one of the fighters was like, hey, 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 hold on a second. Hey, bring that table over here. Hey, don't forget the chicken. Get, get, the, get the ginger ale. No, no, I'm fighting. Give me water. Give me water. Give me water. But the potatoes and the gravy. And the, he just sits down and eats in front of his opponent, right in the octagon. How ridiculous would that look? Right? That he's eating in a place where he should be fearful. But that's the image that God is giving to us, right? That he's so powerful... He's saying whatever enemies you're facing, whether they're physical or emotional or spiritual or mental or whatever, powerless, let's have dinner. Come sit down. You guys just hang out over there. We're going to eat. The best food, the best wine. That's the table that we're invited to. It's a table of peace. This is why he says, I go through the darkest valley and I don't fear evil because I have a God who is far more powerful than anything over there. Is your God, or maybe your picture of God, is he truly that powerful? Do you see him that way over the struggles in your life? That he's someone you can depend on and lean on? Someone that you can have food with in the midst of war and challenge? This next thing, right? You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. In the Bible, oil and anointing is a sign of spiritual blessing. And David is basically saying, you've chosen me. Maybe he was imagining that day when he was that forgotten teenager and the prophet said, I anoint you as king over Israel. And oil poured from his head, symbolic of God's grace and love that was on him. That's the image that we get. God says, you're chosen. You're unique. You're my son. You're my daughter. You can walk through this valley because I'm with you. As a matter of fact, let's eat. And let me bless you in the midst of that. So we find ourselves, right, in places of rest. We find that God leads us to places of challenge. And more, maybe it's better to say he leads us through them. And the last place that we arrive at is a place of promise. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now this is a wonderful thought. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live forever, David says. We know that goodness and mercy didn't follow him all the days of his life. And we know that he didn't live forever. How could he? In those days, right, the sacrificial system only partially covered sin. He wasn't promised eternal life. Isn't that interesting? So David wrote these words, but it's not a reality that he could live into. Now us on the other side of Jesus, this is the reality we can live into. Because Jesus, when he was in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, looked down into the world And he saw all the brokenness, all the suffering, all the pain. He just saw it all. And he said, enough is enough. We're about to go into Advent, right? And we're going to, I can't wait. Christmas is like my favorite time because it's when God showed up. 
In the midst of all this mess, he showed up and he said, I'll take care of it. I will live that life and experience that pain. I'll feel what it's like to be human. Divine glory enshrouded in flesh. I will do it. I'll I'll go away from the comforts of that heavenly home. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll live as a foreigner among them and then I'll give my life for them. So they could experience the union that I have with you, my Father and Spirit. The union that is found in the Trinity, that life, that kingdom. Jesus says that I'll do that. And because Jesus did that, because he made this way for us to be with God and experience with God, we can say goodness and mercy can follow us all the days of our life. That's a promise that we find in Christ. We can say that we will live in the house of the Lord forever. And we can live as people who have hope. I'm going to be honest with you. Lately, the world has been on fire. And it, it terrifies me. It worries me. All this stuff with the Me Too stuff and the sexual harassment and the abuse that's been going on and um, positions of power and relationships where they're supposed to be mentoring people and, and even doctors now with the U.S. World of Gymnastics, there's all these allegations. Look, I have a daughter. She's just 11 months. I ask myself, how am I supposed to raise her in this world? How am I supposed to tell her that this is a perfectly safe place to be? She should trust the men and, and other people who are going to mentor and take care of her. Right? We're living in a time of war. North Korea is like, whoo, right? I'm South Korean, so it's okay. I'm not one of them. <laughs> but my mom and all of my family, they live in South Korea. They, they live there. It's there every day. And uh, it's so funny. I call my mom. I'm like, mom, 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 mom. Like, I've been praying for you. I'm just really concerned. How are you doing? And she goes, oh, we're fine. Plus, he doesn't have an issue with us. He has an issue with America, so you guys should be worried. <laughs> She's absolutely right. right? But there's a, a, a part of me that's concerned, all the violence that we see. Churches should be places that, they're called sanctuaries. They're called ref, refuges, right? And then now they're places where bullets fly. It's a scary, scary world we live in and sometimes it's so easy to live hope but this is what we know when Jesus came, his gospel was that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is available and this world does not have to be this way. Your life does not have to be that way. We know how the story ends. One day Jesus will come and everything will be made right and in the meantime, we as his community of hope can live into that. That kingdom fullness by the ways that we love and forgive and care, pack meals, go to uh, uh, feed and care for homeless people in Seattle, um, go to schools and volunteers to read books to the kids and, and, and all of the things that we do, we can say we are a kingdom people who have hope. There's a brighter narrative that we can live into. And those words, goodness and love will follow me, mercy will follow me and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That eternal reality we can experience here and now. There's hope for us. So our shepherd leads us to a place of promise. And in conclusion, the worship team, you guys can come up now. Here's a simple question for you. Where are you this morning? Maybe you're someone who needs rest. Right? Maybe you're just like, man, this ungodly, hurried pace of life is killing me. It's killing my family. It's killing my relationships. It's killing my spiritual walk. Look, there's an invitation for you. Just stop and pause and breathe and allow God the shepherd to lead you to green pastures and still streams. It might mean a 30-minute walk. 
It might mean five minutes of silence before the day. It might mean disconnecting from technology and spending time with the kids, watching movies or playing games or eating pizza or whatever you do. It could manifest itself in a lot of different ways, but God wants us to be whole. He restores us when we find places of rest. Maybe you're going through a place of challenge. My encouragement with you, for you this morning is very simple. God is with you. He's not distant. Hurting with you, crying with you, walking with you, hoping with you. He wants you to be there in the midst of it all. He wants you to be aware of his presence and to know that you're not alone. Maybe you have no hope. Maybe you're like, this world is dark and broken. Look, that's not how the story ends. And it's not how we have to live our life here. We can be a people of hope and we can encourage ourselves to do that. I'm going to do one last thing. I'm going to pass these out. We're going to kind of do this uh, take one, pass it on thing. I hope there's enough. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Go that way. All right. So, this is a card. Uh, It has Psalm 23 on it. And this is what I want you to do. For the next week, two weeks, a month, if at any point you face anxiety or worry or concern, I just want you to carry it with you. And I want you to pull it out and read it. This is something I do. Whenever I'm feeling something, I just pray through it. Lord is my shepherd. You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it silently. Just allow that to kind of recalibrate your picture with God. And allow you to reorient the way that you're seeing the situation and what you're going through. Okay? Um, And as you go through that, uh, I want to make sure I read the right version for you so people aren't like, you're translating the Bible. Which we can do, by the way. Um, I want this to be a reminder that God is your shepherd. He cares for you, he loves you, and you're not alone in anything you go through. So this is how we're going to close. I'm going to read through the psalm from top to bottom. And then we'll just have a small space of silence and I'll pray for us. So hear this words. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm so grateful for the ways that you love and care for us. Lord, for every heart that desires rest. I pray that you would invite them to spaces of pause. Spaces, God, where activity ceases. Help them to know, Lord, that it's enough to just be who they are. God, for every heart that is going through a situation of challenge, Lord, I pray that you would allow them to experience a profound sense of your presence. You're not distant or far. You might be behind them or beside them or in front of them or all around or above them or below, but you're there. You're there. Help them to feel and know that in some tangible way. And God, for those hearts who are struggling with hope, 
We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we can live into your kingdom right now into the joy and power and love and peace that comes from that. So Father, I ask that you would be with every person. Help us to see you as our shepherd, to truly be in a place of peace, to want nothing because you are so good to us. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.